Welcome, welcome, everyone. Good to have you here with us today. I'm really excited for this episode. I'm Dr. Derek Williams, and here with my newest partner, Matt Vogt. How you doing, Matt? What's up, everybody? I'm good, Derek. How are you, my man? We're excited to kind of breach this topic for a long time. I mean, essentially, all of TLP's existence, we have pretty much just done acquisitions as far as working with clients. We've been really excited to bring Matt on because Matt did a startup and definitely understands that process better than Justin, Steve, or I. But we've kind of been wanting to have just kind of a conversation about making the decision. If you're out there and you're looking at the differences between buying a practice versus starting your own, how do you make the decision and how do you think through that process? So today you've got myself and and Matt that are going to kind of hash things out and and talk about our own experiences and lay things out there for you. Let's do it. You kind of made that sound like that we're going to like get in like the boxing ring against each other or something. Were you planning on this getting violent? <laughs> well, as violent as it, as it can verbally, get through, verbally through, violent. through the Wi-Fi airwaves. <laughs> yeah, man, I think this is going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun because I know we have kind of different perspectives on ownership. As we've worked with with clients, obviously, we work with all sorts of people, but like our perspectives are, are very different. I mean, you you acquired your practice. What size was your practice when you initially acquired it, Derek? Remind me and the listeners. Yeah. So I guess a little bit, kind of recap my experience real quickly. So I, I bought my practice right out of school, looked in a lot of different states and areas. I probably looked at over a hundred different practices as far as like financials and just their appraisal and everything. Found my practice in Lufkin, Texas that I ended up visiting during spring break of my last year of dental school and then uh, pulled the trigger and closed about a month after graduation. The practice had four operatories and was doing about the year before I bought it, it did 570,000 four operatories. And so it already had a a very healthy cash flow. Overhead was like about 55%. So I was able to come in, grow it pretty rapidly through kind of pulling some different levers, got it to the point where it is today. I still just have four operatories. I have two hygienists now instead of one. We're doing on average the last couple of years collecting about 1.7 million and my overhead's about 40%. Jeez, you're the you are the overhead wizard. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> I you know what? I feel pretty good about myself until I talk to Steve. You're who I want to be when I grow up, basically. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> no, that's a great summary. I mean, I I knew that. I know we hadn't talked nuts and bolts for a while, but I think that's helpful for everyone to see where you started in your acquisition and then obviously where you've gotten to today. I guess along those lines, I feel like I've said this a million times on the podcast, but my my story was kind of the same. I mean, we had worked together and known each other through Dental Town. I got encouraged to do a scratch start or I was thinking kind of debating between buying a practice right out of school and starting one. I won't go over the details again. You know, if you're a listener, you can go back and listen to the kind of the description of how this all happened, but decided to do a scratch start. And then practice has grown in a a very similar way and into a similar size than Derek. Definitely with, you know, I have eight operatories now and all functioning with two, sometimes three hygienists, an associate doctor where we split the schedule and then you know, we have a, a bigger team and we're not quite the overhead wizards like you are, but we're we're in a good spot. 
definitely two different ways to get to where we're both at, right? I think prefacing our conversation today, Derek and I, we work with all sorts of clients and I don't want to come out and say, oh, if you don't do a Scratch startup, I I don't want to work with you or I hate anything besides Scratch startups. That's just my path. And I think I've got the perspective of being on that path and then obviously being in in the ecosystem with other dentists who have done startups and, and networking and just kind of finding out all about startups over the last, gosh, almost 10 years now. That's my personal path. And I want to bring value and tell you all about my experiences, but I'm not I'm not the guy who's gonna say, oh, if you don't do a scratch startup, you're you're an idiot, right? There's definitely multiple ways to to do it. And I think Derek would would probably say the same, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think hopefully that's kind of what we can highlight today is kind of talk through. And I've even realized that as we've kind of been laying some of the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today has kind of helped me realize, open my eyes a little bit of seeing kind of some different perspectives and why I may view something a little bit differently. But I think, yeah, I think it'll be really good to have this conversation and talk through like our own perspectives and why we prefer something over another. And yeah, 100 ways to skin a cat. I said that last week on on my solo podcast, even if you're like so one way or the other, you're already in your own practice. I'm sure a lot of you are having the perspective on what is possible and like just how knowing more about the truthfully, the business of dentistry, it's only going to help you. So I'm totally on board with that too. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, you want to start things off? I guess if we're going to kind of chat about acquisitions first, you, you can be the main man for that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll kind of go through point by point and talk about, you know, pros and cons. Probably some of that's going to overlap with talking about starting from scratch. And then we'll kind of pick up any loose details that we missed kind of going back through everything. In my initial thoughts on pros and cons in, in an acquisition is I think that the biggest pro to an acquisition is that you know relatively predictably what you're getting yourself into. You can look at the financials. You can see how much profit they're bringing in every year. You can then evaluate their procedure code report to find out what procedures they're doing to know if you can bring more in-house or if you're not going to be able to do what they're doing. Next, you go to the schedule to see how fast they're doing it to then be able to decide, again, can you pick up the pace a little bit and grow a little bit? Or is it going to be a little bit much for you? There's so much information that you can look at to kind of determine where your drawbacks, what your challenges are going to be and where your opportunities are going to lie as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, but I remember you being like the guru for this as far as like evaluating practices and you kind of still are. I I actually, I remember you leading a lot of discussions about evaluating, you know, the profitability of practices and where where you could purchase a practice maybe that was underperforming with a lot of potential. Yeah, dude, I I loved that was a, that was a fun time what, of life. What a time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was a fun time. I'm being able to evaluate all those practices and run through the exercises and I mean anytime you look at a process and it starts out by you just don't totally understand things and it's not coming together. And then getting to the point where you feel like you can look at something and very quickly see Mm -hmm. what's going on. I think of that scene in the matrix where Neo (laughs) starts to see just code when he's looking at people. And that's the hang, the hangover when Alan's at the tables counting cards. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess guess that works too. (laughs) 
but um, yeah, I, I remember you doing that, and and I love, I do love that when it comes to acquisitions as well. I think there is such potential in that practice size that you purchased. That size, I don't know what you might want to call it, like mid six figures. There's a nice established practice there. You're not trying to scrape by. You know, it's not like the practice is failing by any means. You, you bought a nice practice, but there's a ton of potential there. And there's also not massive overhead and massive infrastructure to to support right off the bat. If you start getting a whole lot larger than that, I mean, you can find some nice practices, but I think where you're at was such a sweet spot. And for a lot of people, that's such a sweet spot to purchase and then still have room to to grow, even with four operatories. If I was to purchase a practice two or three years into my dental career, I, I very likely would have purchased a bigger practice. But coming out of school, I had no idea what I was going to be able to produce. My, sure. my best gauge was talking to other recent grads in the years ahead of me. And I found out that like they were pretty comfortable doing about 50,000 a month for, you know, their first few months. And so that's essentially the criteria that I was looking for. If you're doing 50,000 a month, that's about 600,000 a year. And so my collections and production range that I was looking at was anywhere between like 400 and, and 700. I felt like that was a good spot where I could go in and then continue to kind of grow after that. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it for our dental students who are listening. This is something that you should, if you're going to be a go-getter when you get out of school, like start to think about these things. And not saying you've got to time every crown prep you do in, in dental school, but like really start to think about these things and what life after dental school looks like to kind of chime in on that, you know, from my perspective and starting from scratch, I kind of thought the same thing, Derek. And I said, well, I don't really know what I'm going to be able to produce. I mean, I had an idea that I was getting faster and like able to be competent. My, my strategy was to sign the lease on my practice basically right out of school, but then it took about 10 months to, to build. And I, I tried to find the busiest corporate associateship that I could find to continue to you know increase my speed and increase my, my production ability, but then to get a sense of what I was able to do, which is a good strategy as well if you're, if you're looking at doing something like this. The nice thing about a scratch start is you can also kind of grow with that practice from day one in, in my practice and being less than a year out of school, I was definitely not as efficient or good as I am right now, but I was able to grow with my practice. So I didn't need to be cranking out tens of thousands of dollars of dentistry in a day because I didn't have that. That's just not going to happen on day one. So there is something to be said about that. You can kind of grow with with your practice if you're if you're doing a scratch start. You've got to you better do it quickly to be profitable and successful, but there's a little bit of a, an ability to do that, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I think, again, that I guess in my mind, that's a downside of, of a scratch start that it's it's less predictable from day it one. Is. Like it is. you can go in with, you know, the best marketing mindset and having done all of your research and stuff. And if you're doing that, you're most likely going to do well, mm -hmm. but it's still much less predictable. You just don't know you could say the same about an acquisition that you don't know until you're the one in the chair driving everything. But at least for me, and I find that I've kind of always been like that. I, I am the type of person that I would much rather get something that works 
relatively well that I can fix and make it even better. Whether that's real estate and, and buying a home or a business, I'm not really this type of person that I want to create something from scratch. That's so much work to me. I, I like the idea of buying something that's already there and seeing opportunities, ways that I can build and grow it and reap my reward that way. We've talked about this offline, but it takes a certain personality type. And I think it takes reflection if you're kind of thinking about these things to know which option is right for you. I'm not sure I realized the amount of work and effort at the start that a scratch startup takes until I got into <laughs> to doing it because it is an immense amount of work at the beginning. But I think it takes a certain personality type. If, if that's you, I mean, if you are the type of person who is, I guess, extremely entrepreneurial, who, who's very, you call it visionary, who has a very, very clear picture about what you want, and you know that buying someone else's practice is not going to satisfy or scratch that itch for you, then by all means, you're, you're probably a, a person who could do well in a scratch startup. It's not a bad thing to be a little bit more like you are, Derek. But if you're someone who is just, I want to say, someone who's ready to just kind of work and you know fit into a system immediately, right? And kind of walk in and say, all right, I'm here to do dentistry. Maybe you've got other things going on outside of your career, family, hobbies, things that take up a lot of time and energy and effort. I wouldn't encourage someone like that to do a scratch start because you've got to be invested almost a hundred percent for a decent amount of time to get things rolling the way the way you need to. And if you aren't able to do that, then it definitely doesn't make sense in my mind to do a scratch start instead of acquiring something that's already working. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's definitely something to be said about the investment of time and energy with an acquisition. Your job is basically to do the research and do your due diligence, know what you're buying and feel good about it. That's, for the most part, that's the extent of it. In a scratch start, there's a lot of research that goes into just selecting a location before you've done anything else. Shameless plug, shameless plug. Go listen to last week's pod about location. Yeah, I talk, yeah. talk for 30 minutes. My My wife gets excited when my podcasts go up and she subscribed and she said, Matthew, I just, I couldn't. I don't, you talk so much about location. I about fell asleep. I'm like, well, there are people who want to hear about this. So <laughs> you're not the target audience. <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. The other thing that I was going to ask is, do you think, preface this by saying, going along with my last comment that I would much rather buy something and kind of fix it and, and make it a little bit better rather than start from scratch. I am very willing, like you kind of said, I'm very willing to go into a practice and just do the dentistry and kind of just, just kind of gauge how things are going and then just kind of look at all the opportunities and pick the lowest hanging fruit and just make one change or maybe two changes. And that's generally my philosophy when I'm coaching clients in an acquisition. Hey, let's let's go into this and we're going to try and change very little in the first couple weeks. Stick to your ethics and be honest, those kinds of things, and do good work, those kinds of things. But most of the systems, let's just kind of let's just be an, an active observer in the practice to see and, and to make the decision on what we want to change. With that being said, my question is, do you think that a, a startup person or that a person that is more OCD, that like 
very specific on the way that they want things done would be better off starting from scratch because they can design things from the ground up in that way and not have to go into a practice and completely change things. That's a tough question because I would say that's a pro of starting from scratch is that you're not getting someone else's dirty laundry, bad habits. You're not inheriting poor performing employees that you've got to go through a lot of effort to replace or change or correct, right? So if you're very detail-oriented, and like I said, if you have a very specific vision about what you want, it might be difficult to find that in another practice. And then if, if you do kind of find a practice that you can mold to that vision that you have and all the details that you that you want in your dental practice, it's probably still going to take a lot of work to get it there, right? If you have a... I'm trying to think of a good example. Let's say you want to have a... You just, you just know exactly what you want your office to look like, smell like, feel like when you walk in. Well, it's going to be really difficult to find that and inherit employees and, and team members that are just like ready to roll with 100%. your vision. Totally. So if you're finding a practice like yours, Derek, that's in that area where it, there's potential and you're, you're going to grow that practice, like it's probably going to have some outdated equipment. The decor might be outdated. So you're going to have a lot of work. Like let's not pretend that you're going to walk into his acquisition, everything's going to be perfect. You're going to have a lot of work to to get there. And so in my mind, a lot of the time, it's like, well, I mean, I'm going to be putting a ton of work anyways. Maybe we consider starting from scratch. And if you're that type of go-getter who knows what you want and you're going to make it happen, sometimes it makes sense. So yeah, if you're, it, like I said, it takes a lot of reflection on what you actually want. One thing I think about too is when you're looking at considering these two options, I like for clients, I like for anybody to have a specific almost end goal or exit strategy from dentistry. I know that thinks like that sounds like a crazy thing to think about, but picture what your practice might look like in 5, 10, 20 years. If you're someone who is Let's say you're comfortable working a part-time gig and you work in a two-doctor practice right now and you just love that rhythm. You love working with another doctor and you'd love for that to be how your practice that you own operates. You can get there from a scratch start, but I certainly know from experience, it does not happen overnight and you're going to have to be the, the main person. You're going to have to be the main practitioner and be the guy or the girl who makes it run for a, long, for a decent amount of time. Versus if that's really what you want, well, then go, you know, maybe spend a little bit more money, buy a bigger practice and be able to reach that vision sooner. But you've got to be very clear about what you want. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, really, all of us should uh, begin with the end in mind. Absolutely. I spoke with a, a doctor a while back who had this vision to have an associate and kind of almost be, I don't want to say an absentee owner, but barely practicing. But like a few years into their startup, I mean, they were, I don't want to say struggling, but not really at the point where they were even close for an associate. And that was kind of always their goal, it sounded like. But there was never like the steps being taken to to get there very quickly, if that makes sense. So it was just kind of like a a mismatch of of their of what they wanted and what they were actually doing. So if I could go back in time for a person like that, I would say, well, that was always your goal. Like, I mean, let's get you started off with, with something 
like an existing practice where you can tweak and change and build that to get to your your goal of maybe practicing part-time and having an associate a little sooner. It just didn't align with what they were doing. So that's one of my biggest concerns when people consider starting from scratch. At the same time, is tough because we can have a vision for five years from now, but five years from now, we may be in a very different position. When I initially started out, I was like, oh, I'm going to own multiple locations and <laughs> <I> remember that <laughs> get big and sell to a DSO and walk away. And within like a year, I got this practice doing well over a million and being really happy. I had cut back to three days a week. And then I was, then when I found myself in the position, like I could purchase a second practice and kind of move forward, I found that like, I just really was very happy with the lifestyle that this had afforded me. And Mm -hmm. when looking at, at the options, I didn't, it, it wasn't worth it for me. Still now I kind of choose a little bit more the, the lean and mean rather than just continue to grow and and expand. And again, it just kind of comes down to each individual person and which is why I love it's, it's the lifestyle practice. Everything that we're talking about is look at your lifestyle first and use that to make your decisions for what you do with your practice. If you're doing it the other way around, it's backwards and you're going to end up much less happy than, than you would starting with your lifestyle first. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, I know you do the same, but anytime we're working with somebody, anytime I'm working with somebody, we spend so much time at the beginning defining what you want because everybody is so different. You could be someone who wants to practice till you're 80 and die in your practice. And that is awesome. You may want to be out of dentistry in a few years, build your practice to sell. Like everybody has a different goal. So it's so important to define that. I mean, if you're listening to this and you take nothing else from the podcast, define your goals, define your your plan throughout the years. You might it might not go perfectly according to plan, but the clearer you can be, my goodness, it's it's the more it will help you for sure. Totally. For sure. So you talked about some of these pros of of an acquisition and how you've got potentially less less risk and existing patients and immediate cash flow. You talk about your experience Derek, and and what you see as maybe some cons of an acquisition or what you've seen with your clients when it comes to purchasing an existing practice. I love that you've got immediate cash flow from from day one stepping into things. I think when you evaluate everything, you can look at pretty much everything in a practice. The biggest crapshoot, in my opinion, when you're purchasing a practice is generally the staff. It is extremely difficult to know what kind of a team you're getting. And, you know, I, I work with that's uh, uh, most, uh, I would say 90% of my clients are in, you know, their first five years of ownership. That's just a, such a common problem. And I just got off a, a call this morning from a, with a client. He's, uh, you know, he's nine months into his acquisition and he just loves his staff and they're motivated and they're, they just honestly seem like a great team. But I told him on the call today, I said, you're probably the first client I've ever had almost a year into this is still very, very happy with their staff. It's very uncommon. Usually there's at least one or two that you have a difficult time with, have to end up replacing. So that can be a very difficult part. When you talk about with a scratch start, starting with your own culture in mind and hiring each employee, that sounds like a lot of work to me, which it is, but it's a little bit like, you know, you're laying the groundwork and you're being able to do it from day one, which, I mean, you could argue that 
it's even hard, hard when you're hiring people to know what you're getting. That's even a little bit of a crapshoot in and of itself. But in my opinion, in an acquisition, that is the biggest risk and crapshoot area is not really knowing what you're going to get with the staff. I see that. It's almost everyone. Almost everyone. You're, you're seeing that, like you said, with at least a few of those employees that come over from uh, through a transition. It's just so common to see. And, you know, one of my concerns too that I see a lot right now is how with wages and staff, you know, team overhead, staff overhead rising generally across the board over the last few years, you know, I think you, you have the potential to see also you buy a practice where the doctor was just kind of close to the end of their practice ownership or close to the end of their career. Maybe they're a little less. Uh, I guess stingy, if you will, with with raises or with team members, and they're just kind of you know they're paying them you know a great wage or maybe overpaying them just to everyone happy, which is great. I want my team, I want everybody's team to make a great living. But then you walk into a practice, maybe these team members are doing well, or whether they're doing well or not, they're just they're just probably being paid too much, or you see a drop, some sort of like temporary drop or underperformance because just the new doctor comes in and I don't know, things change. And then you've got not only staff issues to correct, but you're probably paying more than you should. I've seen that with a number of different people and it gets really tricky because you can't just <laughs> you can't just clean house all off right off the bat. You've got to have team members to to help. You've got to keep the car rolling down the road there. But it can be really tricky and and nuanced. There's no perfect way or perfect solution to do it. Yeah. The only other thing I'd add is that it's very common in an acquisition to see the seller over the last, depending on how long they practice, but you know, over the last several years of their career to be much more patchwork type and not diagnose as much. So it's much more common to see lower production. And so even if the staff is at market wages, the payroll percentage can be a little bit higher because their production has gone down. But it also comes through in their what they expect out of their staff. Usually their, their expectations are a little bit lower. It's not worth it to go through confrontations anymore. And so the staff kind of just get away with a little bit more. So that's pretty typical to have to come in and kind of change that culture a little bit and there's definitely certain employees that have a hard time with that. But then on the flip side, there's also others that they see things slipping and they see the quality going down or, you know, issues. And so I've definitely seen it both ways where, you know, sometimes a new doc comes in and they're just so thankful that someone's coming in and trying to treat people the right way and make the best decisions that they can. And I think what you just said is perfect. And not to get way down the rabbit hole with this, but we all deal with this trying to get all of our team members rowing the boat in the same direction. I always encourage dentists and clients to work with staff and come up with a, a unique, I guess, vision for your team, which is almost always revolving around great patient care. Because like you said, Derek, if things are slipping or if the selling doctor was absentee or not quite maybe letting the, letting the staff get away with things or just avoiding confrontation... The team members who are there and and care about what they're doing, you know, the assistants who care about taking great care of patients and making sure they are getting the, the treatment that they need, the hygienists who are doing a great job with making sure perio is addressed and doing all the things they need to do, the front desk team who really takes ownership of 
we're going to schedule people. We're going to get them into our practice because we're helping them. Those types of people will will gravitate to you as a new doctor and a new owner. And then the ones who are just there to kind of cash a check and get away with whatever they want to get away with, they eventually fall to the wayside. But you can actually strengthen those relationships. I, I agree with you 100%. You can strengthen those relationships by doing things the right way, doing things ethically, and really taking great care of people. Let me say, while you make that point, that ultimately... If you're a person that is striving to focus on your leadership skills, you're trying to treat people well, you're trying to understand your business and make good decisions. If you're doing all of those things, you can do well in acquisition, you can do well in a startup. So I think a, a lot of it, what it's going to come down to is, is maybe depending on the area that you want to practice, what makes more sense or with your personality, kind of like I've pointed out. A lot of it is kind of those, some of those intangibles or some of those other things that are variables that are going to play into your decision on what you end up doing. Absolutely. If that was your way of segueing a little bit into talking more about scratch startups, that was very, very well done, my friend. It was very well read. Great segue. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome stuff. You've done this before, I can tell. (laughs) I agree with you. Sometimes we talk about risk. And, and you mentioned, well, maybe there's less risk potentially in buying something that's got an existing patient base and immediate cash flow. There are practices out there that you could acquire that come with a lot of warts and things that require a ton of energy to fix and improve. And those come at a cost. There are opportunities for sure to find an area with great demographics, great location, where there's just not that many great practices to choose from. And that, you know, that's going to depend on where you're looking, but in some areas with killer demographics, but there's just not that perfect practice for you to buy, it might make sense to start up. You have opportunity to grow very quickly, but you've got to have that mindset to be able to grow and improve and set up the systems. If, if someone expects to just kind of open up a practice and say, I'm here and, and everything's going to happen like magic, obviously, obviously that doesn't that doesn't happen. I'd say just go back and listen to to last week's start of my kind of startup mini series to to talk about location. I won't I won't rehash all that, but there's some great information there to kind of set the groundwork for where you're at and and how your practice will grow because the location is the most important thing for sure. Yeah. So when you kind of evaluate and you think through the pros and cons of a startup, what are some of the biggest ones that stand out to you? I'd say I have the unique perspective of I practice in corporate dentistry and then immediately into my startup. So I think there's probably a lot of things that I take for granted in my practice that others have to deal with if, if you're buying an existing practice. But right at the beginning, newer equipment, less repair costs. You know, I'm not saying that you when you start a scratch practice, you're building a, a Taj Mahal and, and getting ADEC everything and spending a gazillion dollars. Like I am very much a, a lean startup advocate. But generally, everything's newer. You know, you get to kind of pick the decor. You get to pick those things that a lot of the time, if you're rolling into an, uh, an acquisition, an older practice, you're kind of putting in the work to improve. So I think that's something that I I take for granted. But it's it's really nice, and we get comments all the time about how our practice doesn't look and feel like you know your typical dental practice. It doesn't even smell like a <laughs> like your typical dental practice. And I think people people value that, and I think it helps us attract the type of patient that we want to attract, the 
kind of health conscious patient in my practice because they just see, oh, this this is how things are done now. And I think it just helps helps everything in the practice to feel newer and to feel nicer in a way. Very much an intangible thing. One thought that I was going to share earlier that goes along with this. The flip side of that is in an acquisition, even if you're buying an older practice, very much I totally did. Paper charts everywhere. I mean, (laughs) it looked like it was straight out of the 1970s, film x-rays, all of that. The nice thing about it is that you know that all of that production and everything coming from that office is with it in its existing condition. I could go in and I could make very small changes, just intraoral cameras. And, you know, I spent like, I don't know, maybe like 20 grand on some computers, digital x-rays and intraoral cameras. And my patients thought that I was like the most uh, high tech office they'd ever seen in their lives. My case acceptance went up. I was able to essentially double production for the next several years without having to update the office really hardly at all. I didn't update the office until over three years into my practice ownership. So I agree with you. I think, yeah, at a a certain point, you've got to be updated. You've got to do things if you want to continue to grow as much as possible. But that is the one benefit of buying in an acquisition. You at least know that the patients that are coming already know what the practice looks sure. like. Yeah. That's a great point. I agree with you 100%. You you kind of know it's very easy to see for especially for someone like you who's so good at improving things and and kind of seeing what levers to pull. Like you can see pretty obviously what you can do in an acquisition to to improve on what's going on already. It just certain ones are going to take take more effort for sure. One thing that I that I see too is you know, I had a very clear vision in my practice. My practice is called the Dentist at Gateway Crossing. And my vision was always to have a two-doctor practice. It was just always what I wanted to do. And when I designed the practice, I designed it to have the potential for eight operatories. And it took us a few years to actually equip all those. But I see a lot of, uh, a lot of colleagues, clients, friends who they're growing their practice or they have this vision, but they just don't have the facility to be able to do that currently. So then what do you do at that point? I mean, Derek, you kind of stuck with being a single doctor practice, practicing in a a way that we encourage TLP. But for a lot of people, they're maxed out in their facility. So they've got to either find a new space or build a new office. And that's just a whole new undertaking. And I see it. I see it a lot. I have a, I have a friend right now here in Indianapolis who's doing that. And truthfully, like kind of like you, I've hit a point in my practice where I love my life and I love my practice and I don't need to grow, 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 grow forever. And the idea of like going through the process again for me is something that I have no interest in doing. And then being married to that for gosh knows how long, I just don't have interest in doing it. So at some point, you, you've got to look at kind of have to look at what you're buying and and where you want to go to practice with two doctors in your office would be, I don't want to say impossible, but you'd have to massively expand your hours and do all sorts of crazy things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, great point. And, you know, and I've kind of contemplated that over, you know, the last few years looking at options and and stuff like that. And every time I come to that crossroads, I just, (laughs) every time I'm just like, you know what, I'm, I'm just too happy. It's too good right now. And and I enjoy pushing in other areas of my life. I really enjoy coaching in TLP. I've 
really enjoyed pushing myself in the gym and like some of these other ways with fitness in the last couple of years. So I enjoy, I always want to be pushing hard in something in my life, but it doesn't always have to be financial. Sure. Sure. No, I, I'm, we're on the same page there for sure. I think while we're on this topic, let's talk a little bit about the possibility. When you're talking about exit strategy, we have to talk about the options as far as when you sell your practice, selling to a DSO versus a private buyer. And we for sure could have episodes on this topic alone, but I think it's at least worth talking about how a practice like mine is very, very difficult to sell to a DSO unless I'm willing to stay on for a good period of time versus a practice that's expanded. You already have associates or some of those things in place. That's much more likely to be an option for you. Absolutely. You know, this is something that I don't want to say people aren't thinking about when they start a practice or buy a practice. We're not like revolutionary in thinking like this, but I think about this a ton now And I think this is something that everyone should be thinking about when they kind of figure out what they're doing. Like, let's compare our two practices. And I know we're still obviously very actively involved in our in our practices and and happy with that. But you're in Lufkin, Texas, uh, until you kind of told me how to how to kind of get there. Like, I just assumed it was in like there were tumbleweeds going by the front door of your office and like guys in boots and spurs and things. You know, I didn't really know what what was going on there. Not too Uh, far from the truth. (laughs) But what like what have you found? So you talk about you talk about selling to a DSO potentially at some point. But like, do you feel like if you decided in a perfect world, you were going to hire an associate or you were going to sell your practice even to a private buyer. I mean, I've got to think that would be pretty difficult to try to, I don't know, convince someone to to come to where you are if versus being in a, a more populated city, like somewhere where a lot of people want to live and do live. Yeah. I'm an hour and a half from Houston. So for the most part, probably like someone that wanted to be here is either going to come because of the cash flow opportunity or they're going to come because they have some family somewhat in the area. Yeah. I had a very, to, to use another real world example, I had a very good friend, very, very successful who had a practice, let's call it an hour outside of Indianapolis. He grew this practice, like very similar to you, Derek, grew the practice, but was so burnt out because he had just created this time-consuming job for himself. And he was I got the sense he was so burnt out and I know he was looking for a reliable associate for a long time. And even like within a within shouting distance of a very big city, just could not find somebody. He ended up selling the practice. He, he's just kind of waiting for the next opportunity. I know he's doing well and he's at, at peace with that decision, but it's not as simple as, hey, I'm going to grow my practice and I'm going to find somebody to work here as many days as I want them to work. And I'm going to work because my perfect schedule and life will be great. How many times do you hear and see people, Dennis and colleagues still who say, you know, I really want to have an associate so I can kind of practice however I want <laughs> and however many days I want. It's just not as simple as just snapping your fingers. I'm very fortunate to work with a, a, a friend and colleague from uh, that I knew from dental school, and we work in, extremely well together. I just I love working with her, but I know that it was much easier for me to find someone like that because I'm here 25 minutes from downtown Indianapolis. There's something to be said for for that when it comes to 
buying, selling, hiring. It, it's not just, it, de- it really depends on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, pros and cons, a lot of times you get outside of those areas and you're going to have an easier time potentially with demographics and reaching higher cash flow, being able to do things that are going to attract more patients and be able to year after year make a lot more money. It comes down to your vision too. I mean, if your vision is to that you love practicing dentistry and, and you're going to be the guy or the girl in your practice and you know, you're going to do great. But if you're like, hey, I, I really want to take a back seat in my practice and, and do these types of things, well, it just might not even be feasible depending on your location. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's definitely several practices in my area that have associates and have grown and expanded. So for sure, different challenges, no matter where you're at, it really comes down to prioritizing what you want to have in your life. Yeah. And when you say you talked about your potential exit strategy in in your practice, whenever that is, when you look at selling a practice and you look at who the practice is getting sold to, potentially, you know, there's, there's a multitude of different options and we don't have to debate that today. Generally, if you've got a newer facility, if you've got a newer lease, maybe it's a newer building, if you're leasing or buying, that's going to look a lot more attractive to private buyers, but especially these DSOs that, let's face it, are a part of our a part of our profession and a part of this forever. But that's definitely going to be a more attractive, more attractive practice down the road to potentially exit from your practice and whatever you're whenever you're ready to do that. So some something to consider, and then all comes down to location too. Any other big things that you have that you think are pros or any cons that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, I think. We've kind of reiterated that generally in a startup, you know, you're looking at a a lot of groundwork at the beginning. You know, you're looking at higher stress potentially in that startup phase. I mean, I remember starting my practice and and working with my startup clients now. Almost everybody just says, I feel like I'm doing so much work right now and nothing's really happening. (laughs) It's that initial work that you're putting in before the floodgates open that takes a lot of time and energy. And it's not easy. In my mind, for the right person, it's, it's definitely worth it. When you are looking at building out a practice, you know, over the past few years, as construction costs and costs of everything has gone up, you can still pay a good amount of money, similar to what you might pay for a practice of, of your size, Derek, to set up your scratch startup practice. But I think it all comes down to the locations and the demographics of, of the area. And then your ability to bet on yourself to grow that practice in a way that would make it worth it versus versus an acquisition. We keep going back to demographics and location, but that really is, in my mind, the most important thing. If it's not feasible to find a suitable practice in an, in an area that you're looking at that you think would be a, a great place for a, for a dental practice, then start one. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. I agree. It's interesting because when I, when I initially hear you say in a startup, you have to bet more on yourself. I mean, that does make a lot of sense. You don't have any preceding reputation or anything like that. But again, I think for myself coming out of school and buying a practice, like I was a hundred percent betting on myself. So yeah. again, kind of back to what I was saying before, no matter which direction you go, you've got to focus on leadership. You've got to focus on getting the right practices 
in place and the right systems and treating patients the right way, trying to train your team and create the culture. There's so much overlap between the two. And I think there's probably a lot more overlap than maybe I even realized. There's definitely some significant differences, which hopefully those of you listening can kind of pick up on them if you're thinking and debating which route to go. But I initially, before I decided to buy a practice, I was totally on the train for for startups. I did some demographic analysis. I was talking with a realtor, was looking at locations and doing a lot of that stuff and ended up not finding just the slam dunk like I felt confident in. And that kind of led me to look looking at acquisitions after that. So again, either either route, but yeah, I think that's a great point. Bet on yourself no matter which way you go and <laughs> yeah. you're going to be happy with the outcome. Absolutely. But bet on yourself in a way, in an informed way, if that makes sense. Bet on yourself with information <laughs> to back up what you're doing. Because I, I, there are plenty of people who I, I think you, you would agree. We reiterated this already, but it takes a certain personality. And so have a lot of reflection. If you're listening to this podcast and to kind of start to put a bow on things here, have a lot of reflection on who you are, where you're going, what your career looks like, what your family life looks like. And I think that will, having some of the information we've talked about today, I think will help guide you if you're listening to this to the right choice for you. Because it's just not, it's not possible to say one thing or the other. For every person, there's going to be a different way to go or different possibility. But yes, at the end of the day, Derek, it's it's betting on yourself. That's what this is, whether you're buying a practice or starting from scratch, for sure. All great points. Hopefully, everyone that's been able to listen today has been able to take away some things that resonated with you, even if you're well down this road and it's helped you kind of understand or even look at your exit strategy coming up in the coming years. How, how are you going to approach things differently? I was just going to let everybody know, we do post these episodes and give updates on our Facebook page. So if you're not a part of that, then go ahead and request to join and we will accept you. Let us know what you think about this episode. Is there anything that resonated with you or, or questions that you have or things that you feel like that we missed and didn't, didn't cover that are some big advantages or disadvantages in a startup or acquisition? Let us know. Of course, as always, feel free to reach out to us, Derek or Matt at thelifestylepractice.com. Let us know if you have questions or things that you've been thinking about. We're always happy to, to talk and, and obviously look at the options as far as helping you get set up with TLP Academy or working one together, one-on-one together in coaching. So take care, everyone, and have a great one. We will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Sicker than your average.